0: Greetings to all of God's people, this is Mordecai Joseph. We are today on lesson number 12. Last time we have concentrated on the first few scriptures of Genesis chapter 3, and in specific on the subject and the concept and the understanding of the word in English last, in Hebrew, which means, uh, as I have uh, covered that before that, uh, many things that uh, a lot of people didn't consider. That is, many positive things about this concept. Well, we're going to continue with this uh, theme again today, and I'm going to cover a couple more concepts, because in Genesis chapter 3, and verse 6, we in essence see a very pivotal uh, verse to the whole morality, the understanding of morality, that is, uh, in terms of sexuality, moral uh, understanding of uh, the Western society, the Western hemisphere, and also it travels to many other societies, through those who uh, preach the same concept into many uh, societies and nations, and uh, in specific, through the one that is called the Great Church of Revelation 17, and also by other titles. Uh, in verse 6, uh, again, let's go back to this one because there are an awful lot of uh, concepts embedded in this very uh, specific verse. In verse 6, we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, That it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And in essence what we are covering here is a very deep concept that has to do with an awful lot of many, many other elements. We have covered last time the concept of lust, but it has to do more than that. It talks about the totality of the senses, the senses that God had created, and in this case, using The good things that God had created, which God called very good, to a wrong purpose. And that's, in essence, where the difference is between the good things that God gave us and the abuse that we put it to. And uh, the reality and the the consequences of that and the end results of that is bad. But if we put it to good use, it is always good. And so, uh, there are a couple more concepts that I'd like to uh, delve into in this uh, uh, time, at this time that is, and talk about two more concepts that have affected very, very deeply the morality of the West. In other words, all of us, to one degree or the other, have been affected by it. And so when we come to study the Bible, when we come to study the Word of God, the purity of the knowledge of God, it is very important for us to begin to see all things not from the point of view of the background out of which we came, or the culture, or the churches, or the world, or whatever we have learned as we have been raised by our parents, by our culture and society, or uh, themselves who have been raised by their own parents and so forth many generations before. But we have to look at it from the mind of God. How it was. As Jesus Christ later on would say about certain aspects, speaking in, in the uh, in the scriptures, that is in the, in the New Testament, about the concept of divorce, where people asking, him, well, is it, is it okay to divorce? And he said, well, in the beginning it was not so. In other words, there are many things that later on became a practice, became a part of the culture, became even a part of the law. But he's telling them something that in the beginning, when God meant for all things to be in a certain way, many things that came to be what they were, even though they were legalized even by God himself, they were not that way. So, in the beginning, it was not so, he said, about divorce. For men and women are to become one, one flesh, and not to be separated. Uh, reality changed as time went by because of sin and iniquity, and many deceptions entered in, hardness of the heart, iniquity, all kind of other elements that affected even the law of God in certain ways. And so, we're going to see this concept, as we've already ca- covered the concept of lust, As it was in the beginning, how was it, from the beginning, how was it meant to be, before Satan entered into the picture, and totally defiled the mind of men, and women, and their children, and all those who came after them, to every single one of us, to this very day. And so, we're going to concentrate again, as I said, on verse 6, because... There are a few more things that we need to cover before we proceed. Uh, Just like someone used to say, let's go back to the tree, to the two trees. And the reality is there is an awful lot that happened in the beginning that affected the rest of history that in essence paved the road for humanity, for the morality, for the nature of man, for the actions of man, for the history of man. And so it's important for us to So, uh, so, uh, that is, to remove the debris, to remove the misconceptions, to remove all those things that came along the way, the death, and to see it from the point of view of the beginning. How was it when God created it, and how was it meant to be? And so, we are back to the verse that deals with many aspects of uh, what humanity became, what affected humanity, what led humanity into sin, what in essence destroyed humanity in many ways and corrupted humanity and demented many and created an awful lot of sufferings and afflictions that many of us are afflicted with to this very day. And so we read in verse 6, and I'll repeat it again, then I'll go through the Hebrew to give you a better understanding of it. So when the woman saw, so you see the sense of sight, the tree that it was good for food, there you're talking about the sense of taste, and that it was Pleasant to the eyes, you're talking again, uh, not only at the sight in terms of looking at it, but the the message that is transmitted by the brain, that it is pleasant. And of course, the word there is not pleasant, but as I go through the Hebrew, you'll see a little bit better of this understanding. And a tree desirable, again, uh, you're talking about the senses that affect our mentality and our actions. So it was desirable to make one wise, and she took of its fruit and ate. Now, as written in Hebrew, it basically goes like that. That when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was lustful, you see, lustful to the eyes, while in English it says pleasant to the eyes, which does not convey the real meaning of it. So it is lustful. And last time we've covered thoroughly the concept of lust, so you would know exactly what it means. As it was in the beginning, not what it became later on. By mind's of people who did not have proper understanding, and by that time they were already very thoroughly corrupted from the purity of the truth. And so it was lustful to the eyes, and in Hebrew it says, v'nechmad ha'etz, that is, and uh, an, an desirable in English, in other words, the tree was desirable to make one wise, the word in Hebrew for desirable is Nehmad. And this is uh, one concept that I'll go through today, because nechmad is a noun that comes from the verb covet. In other words, you would say it was coveted to make one wise, not desirable to make one wise, because desirable does not convey the meaning of these uh, specific words, nouns, and verbs. In other words, you are losing an awful lot of the purity of the knowledge, if you're going to misconceptions, desirable is a misconception, and pleasant is a misconception, because pleasant in English is not the right translation. It was lustful. And desirable in English, it's not the correct translation. It is coveted to make one wise. In other words, she coveted that. But you see, we have to understand what does covet mean from the mind of God. In other words, how was it meant to be in the beginning? what was the original understanding, which still is in the society that uses the very language that you're reading the Bible in the original, that is in Hebrew. And to this very day, uh, those concepts have not changed at all in the uh, uh, Hebrew-speaking world. Uh, It has changed uh, in in other cultures, in other societies, in other languages. And then she took of that tree and she ate of it and of course she gave to her husband. So, let's go again as we did prior uh, to this uh, subject, that is in the last subject as we talked about last, to the same book that I quoted from before. Uh, by the way, this book has been written about 15 years ago, and uh, it's called Conspiracy Against Sex. And I'm going to quote from this book again uh, the concept of sensuality, because we're dealing with the senses here, the sense of the sight, the sense of the taste. And uh, the sense of uh, of the uh, eye, and uh, I mean the hearing would not be an issue here. Uh, but anyway, we're talking about the senses here, and so we're going to cover, it in spe- I mean, to cover in specific the concept of coveting from the biblical original understanding of it, and also the senses, which uh, uh, we are calling, you know, sensuality. But sensuality basically deals with the senses. Now. Uh, I'm going to cover the the biblical understanding of it, of what sensuality is all about, what coveting is all about, and what Well, uh, that was already covered. So, let's begin from this point, because we're going to see aspects that we have not understood before properly. And so, I'm quoting from this book again. Uh, the Victoria, Victorian era was greatly influenced by the dualistic teachings of the church. And in the Victorian era, the Puritan era, I mean, era, this is when the the translators of the King James were alive. And so they injected into the translation their own concepts of the time, which was natural for people to do. You basically write from the point of view of your understanding, and when you see something in a different language or a different culture, you try to interpret it from your own culture, from your own understanding, from your own linguistic uh, perception. And so basically that's what they've done. And that's why in many cases they went wrong and they did not interpret or they did not translate properly many things. And uh, the theology that they were also influenced by affected the translation also. And so we are reading about the Victorian era, the Puritan era, it was all the same. The Victorian era was greatly influenced by the dualistic teachings of the church. It left its foul impact of prudishness upon Western society to this very day. Wholesome desires were regarded as lustful and animalistic. Everything that could even remotely suggest sexual connotation was regarded as sinful and therefore to be avoided or covered. For example, Queen Victoria, who was known for her extreme prudish behavior, ordered that all piano and furniture legs should be covered because their shapes sug- suggested lustful sex. This was an extreme perversion. Yet it was considered to be the Victor- I mean, to be by the Victorians to be a wholesome sexual attitude and therefore good. Now the Almighty God, who created the glorious beauty of the sunsets, the flowers in the fields, the gorgeous and splendid variations of the four seasons, the dazzling splendor of the birds, fish and earthy treasures, this God never taught. So, in other words, his concepts were not Victorians, no Puritans, nor the church uh, concepts, uh, nor any man's concepts. His ways are not our ways, and his path are, is not our path, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So, we want to know what is it that he thinks. And So, he does not think that way. And that is important for us to realize that. Uh, We'll continue to quote: The God who created the crystal clear, pure water, the innocent, sweet smile of a little child, the marvelous, awesome design and beauty of the human body and sexual organs. This omnipotent and omniscient God of purity, wholesomeness, and beauty, in whom no shred of evil or shame dwells. This God thunders to all of His creation, "Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil." that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's from Isaiah 5.20. We quoted that earlier in the last uh, take. Now, let's examine three major examples which illustrate the reality of this tragic statement of your maker in Isaiah 5.20 and its devastating results on Western society. And again, we we'll continue to quote from this, uh, this book. Uh, three major examples taboos in the Christian West shaping, forming, molding, and governing the morality, life, and thoughts of the religious Western society are lust, covetousness, and sensuality. The Christian West has been hopelessly struggling with these three moral no-no's, often with bitter failure, frustration, mental anguish on one hand, and the attitude of, quote, who cares, so let's do it, since it feels good, unquote, on the other. How did the West reach such a pathetic state of affairs? How was it victimized into such a tragedy? Many of the early Catholic fathers strayed into this darkened tunnel and journey of torment and mental anguish when they injected into their newly found religion their former warped concepts on human sexuality and morality of pagan origin. Their pre-Christian lives were woven with loose sexual immorality and strains of guilt Their new path was haunted by the desires to experience the former active, quote-unquote, dainties of sexual immorality. Hence, their understanding of the pure biblical teachings on sexual morality left much to be desired. Consequently, as a result of the new tormented struggle to what they perceived to be the last of the flesh, they went about producing their own brand of warped mixture of morality, the sorry result of such misguided, quote-unquote, new morality has produced the devastating results with fiery sour grapes of wrath. It has earned Europe in the Middle Ages, as previously mentioned, the dubious title of, quote-unquote, vast insane asylum. And that's, in essence, uh, what uh, when you read history about the period of uh, Middle Ages, that's what Europe became because of all the perversions that affected so many, that haunted so many, that defiled and perverted and warped so many, in essence, that's what it did to the society. So that the historians who looked into that era and wrote about it, that's basically what they call that era. A Europe of vast insane asylum. And so we continue to quote, The new morality has dogmatically proclaimed that good is evil, darkness is light, and bitter is sweet. Is there any wonder why... The West is haunted by, by countless forms of sexual hang-ups, deviations, and perversions to this very day. And by the way, those things spread throughout the whole world, and to begin with, they were in many parts of the world, uh, but previous, uh, you might say, reincarnation of, uh, of the same church, the Babylonian church. And so we continue to quote, Is there any wonder why most of the early Catholic creeds and penitentials dealt with sexually oriented subjects. Let us begin, or let us repeat again, our Maker has declared, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye be single, your whole body shall be full of light. But if your eye be evil, your whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness! according uh, from uh, the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 6:22 and uh, 23. And basically, that's what caused Europe to become a vast, insane asylum. It was full of darkness, because they have corrupted the pure truth of God. And in specific here, we're talking about the census and talking about sexuality. Through the Apostle Paul, we continue to quote, Our maker has stated, Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Quoting from Titus 1.15. These two statements reflected the mind's consciences and attitudes of the early Catholic fathers and their followers. Let's examine now more specifically the Catholic fathers' attitude towards some of the major taboos of the Christian morality of the West. And so, last time, we covered the concept of lust, And this time, we're going to continue with the concept of, in general, senses, or sensuality, and the term uh, to covet. As we read here in uh, chapter 3 and verse 6, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And the word for desirable there in Hebrew is nechmad, which means coveted, to be coveted. It comes from the verb to covet, and it is the noun, uh, covetous, or whatever. Uh, In essence, uh, this verse, that is, this word appeared the first time in chapter 2, and uh, let's go through that chapter 2 in verse 9. And in this case, God is introducing this first word, and out of the ground the Lord God made, that is, Jehovah Elohim, made every tree grow that is pleasant. You see, the word there is, again, Nechmad, which comes from the word to covet. And yet, the King James uh, translators uh, use the word pleasant instead of the correct translation of it that will give you uh, proper understanding of it. But again, because of their morality, they had to change the words to fit their understanding and their concepts of uh, their own theology and their own morality. And so, they uh, translate that to pleasant. In Hebrew, it's Nechmad, which is the same one as in chapter 3 and verse 6. She saw the tree that was Nechmad, that was desirable. So in one case they wrote pleasant in chapter 2 and verse 9, and in chapter 3 and verse 6 they translated it to be desirable. And pleasant and desirable are not the same concept. You see? So they're already picking and choosing, you know, whichever they're going to translate, the very same word that comes from the verb to covet. And in the process, uh, much understanding is lost. And then again, that's a product of the morality of the time. And so we are going to read now about generally uh, speaking the census, and then we'll uh, talk also about uh, the term and the concept to covet. And so we continue to quote. Now, uh, now that you have been exposed to this pure and overall biblical understanding of the subject of lust, as we've covered up earlier, uh, think of the damage, mental torments and anguish, warped minds and defiled conscience, though often without malice or knowledge. In other words, think about all these consequences which have been wrought into the lives of countless of victims in the Western society. How many relationships, marriages and friendships have been demolished to smithereens, but such definitely unbiblical misconceptions, preached and perpetrated by innocent and not-so-innocent religious teachers and moralists. And you, the reader, in your case, the listener, should be asked, do you want to be ever so deceived and defiled in your mind, heart, and conscience, or do you want to be free? And only the truth, as Christ told us, will make us free. Nothing else can make us free but truth and the purity of truth, not perverted truth. And so we continue to quote, Liberty can come only, or can only come by knowledge of the pure law and teachings of your Maker. You have a choice. Choose liberty and life. That's this is what Moses told the people of Israel who came out of Egypt, a land full of misconceptions and idolatry and perversions. And he told them to choose liberty. Choose life. In other words, choose the Word of God, the purity of it. Not all the lines that you've been taught before, that that corrupted your concepts, your teachings, your understanding, your philosophy, your emotions, everything. And so, choose liberty. And we continue to quote, Yes, your maker always condemns the abuse of anything, any thought, any attitude that is harmful to you and your neighbor, but he will never condemn the right use of any good thing he himself has created. And remember he said about all those things that he created, including the senses? Very good, not very bad. Not a mixture of truth and error, but very good. And so we continue to quote, "...but he will never condemn the right use of any good thing that he himself has created. True, Satan has deceived men to believe that sex is evil, lust is evil, sensuality is evil, and animalistic, coveting is evil and immoral, pleasure is evil, feeling good is evil, and so forth." Yet, when God created all things, he said emphatically, quote, it is very good, unquote. Whom are you going to believe? Your archenemy would always like you to blur the difference and remove the boundaries between the holy and the profane, between the light and darkness. So far, thanks to the naivety of man, his archenemy has been too successful, unquote. And that's why, The maker told Adam and Eve and commanded them to eat of every tree of the knowledge that is of every tree that is in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, if somebody gives you a glass of pure, crystal, clear, sweet water, that's good. But if if, if you put some drops of poison into it, that's bad. And the bad makes the whole thing bad. And therefore, the tree of the knowledge of good And evil is all bad. Because poison will kill you. It may take time. But good and evil is not good. Good and evil is sinful. And therefore to have a morality that is a mixture of good and evil that's a sinful morality. And that's why when God spoke about the church of Revelation 17 He called her the great whore. She's taking that which is good that God created and is abusing it. And all those who came after her, her daughters... The harlots, they did likewise, because they basically followed the same culture and the same understanding and theology of their mother. And therefore, that morality is not good. And we have to realize that if we want to be like God, we have to be totally pure. And eat only of the tree of life, and all the other trees of the garden, so to speak, that God gave us, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that's the reason why we're studying the Word of God. Because we are admitting that we are not clean, we are not pure, we are not righteous, we are not perfect, we are not pure. We want to be. And so we should not take an offense at that or be offended by the words of God when they seem to be contrary to what we think. After all, what we think is not from God. Oftentimes, it's what our parents and culture and society taught us. So let's continue uh, quoting here. So, what about sexuality? This is another major taboo in the West, and established Christianity is poisonously mixed morality. Because we're talking about the census here in chapter 3 and verse 6 of Genesis. And so it's important for us to understand it from God's point of view, and this is a perfect time to introduce this subject. For the simple reason, that would basically determine the rest of the morality for history, for all of Israel, for all the nations of the earth, for all of us and how we should go back to the beginning. Where in the beginning, it was not so, what became later on. And we want to know what is the pure word of God. So, now what about sensuality? We continue to quote, This is another major taboo in the West, and established Christianity's poisonously mixed morality. Where did the West get its teachings about this subject, which is one of the major ingredients of the biblical arts of love towards one's maker and mate? And for that matter, all mankind, proper way. Your maker has intentionally and deliberately equipped you with the five senses that make sensuality possible in the first place. See, God is the one that did it, not Satan. Continue to quote, The whole physical universe is a reflection of the five senses. In this awesome universe you can see the full range of the colors of the rainbow. You hear the sound of music. You smell the aromas and perfume of of plants, flowers and the skin of your loved ones. All of us love to, to smell the skin of a sweet little baby. And uh, that is a part of the sensuality. That is a wholesome, clean pure sensuality. Yes, in this delicious universe, you taste the spices that give life to your foods. You fondle, touch and caress with pleasure many things around you. Your essential being as your maker has made you to be. Being one himself. You see, he couldn't give us what he didn't have himself. So it's important to remember that. Continue to quote, He's the one who said it is very good. The desire to experience all these divine sensual gifts make up your pure sensuality. You can either use it or abuse it. Sensuality, like, like lust, is purely neutral. What you do with it determines whether you sin or not. Your Maker has it through the Apostle Paul in his writings to the Hebrews, for everyone that uses milk is skillful in the word of righteousness, for it is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are full of age, that is, mature. Even those who by reason of use, not misuse, have their senses, we are talking about the senses, either spiritual or physical, have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil. In Hebrews 5 13, 14, we read the scriptures. And we continue to quote, The sensual lovers of the Song of Solomon have reached this coveted and often lacking maturity of the senses. Hence they, by right use, have fully exercised their senses properly, and so can you. In other words, in this book, there is a chapter that deals with the the Song of Solomon, that is, the Song of Songs, and all the ingredients of the arts of love, and so, in this case, we are referring to that. Uh, We continue to quote, Temple rituals from Sinai have fully utilized the the diverse ingredients of the pure Biblical sensuality. It was a husband-wife relationship, hence the presence of sensuality. Such worship or love relationship demanded the presence of the refined and sensually provocative ingredients of beauty, of splendor, of pleasant attire to fix the eyes. It required the presence of expensive spices, and perfumes and aromas. It necessitated the pleasing of the ear by instruments of music and songs. In physical marriage, the lover's eyes feasted on erotic dances and ecstatic body movements that express thrill and joy. You can read that uh, in the Song of Songs. And basically, when you read the book, uh, unquote, for, uh, this is another part of the book, uh, when you read uh, in Exodus, when God gave Moses a description of the tabernacle, and all the elements that are there. And then you read more about it in the book of Leviticus in terms of all the sacrifices and all the elements that should have been there. The sacrifice, the fine flour, the honey, uh, many of those things. uh, that all basically tell you about the, the fulfillment and the necessary elements for the arts of love which involve the totality of the five senses. So... In the spiritual relationship, God demanded all those things. And in the physical relationship, man should have been using all those things, not abusing. That's what the problem is. And that's how a pure concept becomes defiled, when they inject poison into it. And that's, in essence, what happened to the concept of lust. A pure concept that was infected with impure attitude and covetousness a pure concept that was infected and infected with impure attitudes and sensuality. And basically, for that matter, anything else. We continue to quote, David was a man according to God's own heart. He pleased and delighted his maker with singing and dances. He had developed his sensuality to a high and refined and pure plateau, both physically and spiritually. Hence, he could avidly state, "...as the heart pants for water, so does my soul pant for you, O living God. Actually, this is what the book here says, but actually David was not the one that uh, stated that. It was uh, Asaph. But David also said many words in like manner in many other psalms. And so the psalmist compared the teachings of his master to sweet honey. His worship was full of sensuality-oriented statements and desires for his maker. And the psalmist was neither a Catholic, nor a Protestant, nor a Victorian, nor a Puritan. Therefore, he could and did express sensuality, yet without sin. Now, David understood, and the psalmist, all those who wrote the psalms, there were several of them. David was not the only one. He was uh, the major writer of it, but there were others. Uh, David understood that if you take the manifestation of the five senses away, you have nothing left to worship God that is your God, and love your fellow man with. You are left with a kind of of, of, uh, worship or love affair that is tasteless, spiceless, and odorless. Such is often the nature of Protestant worship. This is what we read in this book, Uh, not biblical worship. This tragedy has been committed against the Protestant West in particular, and for that matter, many other religions. That's why Protestants tend to be, in most aspects of life, mild manners, that is mild mannered, often introverted, fireless, spiceless, and often emotionally unexpressive. Now, this is not the case in today's Protestantism because there have been a lot of changes in this last century. But we're talking about uh, Puritan, mainly Puritan and Victorian Protestantism. And we continue to quote here, uh, that seem to be emotionally unexpressive, except in sports and violence, where they are very expressive in those areas. In short, a dormant volcano. The fire of pure biblical lusts, sensuality, and right kind of covetousness has been stifled and squelched in their lives. And for that matter, that happened to many other societies. And as I quoted that before, even in communist Russia and places where they don't even believe in God, they too were infected by the same morality. Let's go now, we continue to quote, to the third major taboo in, in established Christianity is morality, and that is coveting. What is it from the biblical point of view? The West takes it for granted that it knows and assumes that the biblical teachings of the maker do forbid the act or attitude of coveting in any shape, manner and form. But does your Maker back up such an adulterated misconception? Let's allow the Maker to speak his mind on this issue. uh, In this case, uh, at this point, uh, let me inject uh, scriptures from the New Testament, which, when people read it, having no background, no knowledge, no understanding, not knowing how it was in the beginning, uh, people that came from uh, morality that was to begin with corrupted and polluted, they did not understand what the Apostle Paul was talking about. And so let's go to the book of Romans in chapter 12, where, uh, actually in chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul, among many others, talks about this uh, quality of coveting. He's not explaining it, that uh, is he's fully here because he has no need to. The people that uh, he wrote to the time they understood what he's talking about. Those who came later did not. Having no background. And he says here in verse uh, 6 of chapter 7, speaking about the law, and, you know, that is speaking about the Torah, that is speaking about the word of God. Now, he's not speaking about Christian ethics and Christian morality and Christian uh, attitudes and, uh, and uh, principles and doctrine and all those things. Now, all, all those uh, concepts came later on by religion that wanted to separate itself from the genuine, true religion of God and the church of God. So he says here, but now we have in verse 6, we have been delivered from the law. That is, we have been delivered from the penalty of the law, not from the law itself. Having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And the spirit is even much more binding than the letter. It is much more demanding, not the opposite. In verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Why is he even posing this question? Because he knew what, what is on the mind of man. He knew what is on the mind of the people that he was talking to, which in most cases were non-Jews. In other words, the other nations, that didn't have much uh, uh, affection for the law of God, for the Torah of God. And so he's warning them in essence, and he's warning the next 2,000 years who are going to read this, because he knew what was going to happen. He says, is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known... Seen except through the law, through the Torah, through the word of God, through the law of Moses. This is where the law has been uh, expounded, by God himself, given word for word to Moses. That's why it's called the law of Moses. It's not because Moses invented it, but because Moses was the law giver. Whatever God told him, he said it again, repeated it again, faithfully to Israel, word for word. And so, through the law... The knowledge of sin comes. If there is no law, the law is done away with. How would you know what is sin? And if you don't have the pure understanding of the concepts that have to do with the senses, the sexuality, the immorality, or morality, or anything else, if you do not have the pure understanding from the law itself, how would you know whether you are right or wrong? How would you know whether you are right uh, partially and uh, then wrong on the other side? In other words, you're going to be mixed up. You're going to be eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so without the, the law, there is no knowledge of sin. And without the law, as we're going through it now, there is no proper understanding of anything. Be it lust, be it covetousness, be it sensuality, be it anything that God taught us. So it's important for us to develop a, a, a proper knowledge and understanding and desire and a pure mind toward the law of God. I know there are many ways... No, uh, not much affection for it. They are very resentful when he talk to them about the law of God. That's because they don't even know what it is. They don't have a proper understanding of it. Or they have a mixture of truth and error in their understanding of it. And so he says, For I would not have known covetousness. You see? The very word that we are just reading here in Genesis 3.6 and previously introduced by God in Genesis 2 and verse 9. How for I would not have known covetousness unless the law has said, you shall not covet. So people read and say, "Aha, coveting is wrong. When you don't have a proper background of what he's talking about, it's very easy to come to this wrong conclusion. But when he has a proper understanding, he's not talking about the right use of it, he's talking about the abuse of it. And to begin with, the law doesn't say, you shall not covet. The law says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You see? If you just say you shall not covet, then you can be misled by that. But the law says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's property. In other words, don't covet anything that is not yours. But the law didn't say, don't covet, period. You see? That becomes a perversion of the law. And Satan is very clever in those kind of matters. That's how a conflict comes about. And so he continues, But sin-taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me. You see, he's talking about sin. Sin within covetousness. Not righteousness. But sin-taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. You see? evil desire determines whether coveting is right or wrong. But, if it is righteous desire, it is not wrong. Covetousness is not wrong. To covet is not wrong. But evil desire will make it wrong. Sin, that is, transgression of the law, will make it wrong. For apart from the law, sin was dead. In other words, without the understanding of the law, you do many things, and you think many things, and you feel many things, and you think you are doing okay, until the knowledge of the law comes, and you begin to realize, no, I'm not okay, I wasn't thinking right, I wasn't feeling right, I thought I was. And that's what he's talking about. In other words, he said, without a background of the law of God, you just don't know what is right and what is wrong. And many people have very little background of the law. They don't understand what it means. Many have been taught, from the beginning of life, for centuries, the law is bad. Well, How are you ever going to know the purity of truth of what is right and what is wrong, if that's the attitude that you have? Obviously, you can't if you want to be a servant of God. If you want to be a part of the mind of God, of the nature of God, of the character of God, and ultimately of the kingdom of God, of the family of God forever. You have to think like Him. Because our thoughts, and we have to admit it, our thoughts are not His. Our ways are not His. We've been taught by another spirit. And we're coming out of it. And we have not totally come out of it yet. And those of us who claim, well, I'm totally out of it, in that sense, as John says. He that says, I have no sin, is a liar. Now, we don't want to be liars. So, it's easier to admit, look, I don't know everything. I may think that I know. I don't know everything. So, that's that's why you you know the difference. That's how you know the difference between the people of God and those who claim to be. In other words, as John would say in Revelation, uh, those who claim to be Jews and are not Jews. uh, Those who have resentment to the law of God are not of God. That's as simple as that. As the Apostle Paul says, the carnal mind is enmity, is an enemy of God. He cannot be of God and be his enemy. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So these attitudes are just not tolerated by God. He doesn't tolerate anyone that hates his law because that's his nature. How can he go to God and say, I hate your nature, but I love you? You that doesn't make sense. So we have to sit down and and humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and and, uh, begin to think from his point of view. I say, not my will be done, not my thought be done, not my feeling be done, but yours. And that's, in essence, what we're trying to do in the teaching of the law. Some people don't have the proper appreciation for it, as they should. Uh, And oftentimes, because of misunderstanding, misinformation that we've had in the past, and they're not even aware of it. And so Paul is saying, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment, that is, when the, the comprehension of the law, the background of the law, what it really means, came... Sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So we can never ever gainsay the law. And speak evil of it. Because that's the very nature of God. The pure mind and nature of God. And that's in essence what we are doing here. We are trying to uncover what is the purity of the nature of God. From the mind of God, the way He produced it, and introduced it, and uh, and taught it from the beginning. And that's the reason why we are going so very thoroughly through these concepts, because we have been deceived. And God commanded us to come out of Babylon, come out of Egypt, come out of whatever concept or philosophy or teaching or idea that we received before God opened our eyes and brought us to Him, to be His disciples. And so that's why Christ told us, "If you love me, keep my commandments, keep my law. You cannot keep it if you hate it. That's as simple as that." And so we're going to continue now, quoting from uh, the book. Uh, uh, first, let's ask, uh, let's ask, uh, what does the word "covet" mean? In the Hebrew dictionary, we find the following meaning that cover the diverse forms of the verb and noun "covet." Now we're reading from the Hebrew dictionary. And the reason is, because if you go to the dictionaries of other nations, of other peoples who have their concept, their theology, their ideas, you're not going to get always the proper uh, understanding of it. But we're talking about people who were neither Catholics nor Protestants, nor a part of that uh, uh, morality, and therefore uh, having the perfect knowledge of the language, they basically explained it for what it is. And so reading from the Hebrew dictionary the concept, Of the verb and noun covet. And it means to desire, lust for, and by now you know what uh, the full meaning of the word lust is. Uh, It means be carnally excited. That means physically excited. Little babies, you know, you give them a little uh, little toy or whatever it may be, they're carnally excited. Physically excited. That's all they can do. Uh, There is nothing wrong with that. Uh, uh, It means pleasant. It means charming. It means beloved. It means lovely. By the way, the, the prophet uh, of Islam, Muhammad, uh, comes from the word Hamad, uh, which means to covet. You see? But to covet means also beloved. It doesn't mean all only the bad things. You see? So his name is covetous, But not covetous in the wrong sense. You see? That's, that's Muhammad. And uh, you have to think about it from that point of view. It means lovely, delightful, desirable. And that's why in English sometimes... the they translated the the word for pleasant, other times desirable, but never would they put the correct word itself, because they knew what the concept meant for their culture. You see? And that's deception. Not to tell you exactly what came out of the mind of God, but to translate it in their own concepts. That is, giving you only partial truth, but not all of it. And so that's why they put sometimes pleasant, sometimes desirable, instead of the real one. So it means beloved, lovely, delightful, desirable, precious, pretty, grateful, cute, darling, dainty, delectable, and also greed, avarice, grasping, envious. Now you see the difference. Much good, some evil. You see? In other words, uh, the law will determine whether what you do with this concept is good or bad. You cannot claim it all bad. At so this one we're going to stop, and uh, we're going to continue with the next lesson, that is, lesson uh, chapter 13, with the same subject. And this is, again, Mordecai Joseph saying greetings to all of God's people. The preceding message was taken from the worldwide website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.